0: With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
3: We
0: acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their Elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal Elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children.
3: Good day great sentencing. It's what we hoped for. Were you pleased with the outcome? Yes, I was. What does 26 years mean to you? The time doesn't mean anything, really. It will never bring Rick back to us. But it's a good time. Thank you. Do you feel justice has been served? Yes, we do. Thank you. Thank you.
0: That's Geelong woman Christine Loder speaking on the steps of the Supreme Court of Victoria after Carl Haig had been sentenced for the stabbing murder of her 16-year-old son, Ricky Balcom, in the city's Market Square Mall 23 years earlier. Christine read out a victim impact statement during the sentencing hearing in which she spoke of dropping her son off at the mall that day. While Carl Haig's family reportedly laughed, swore and sneered at her, Christine spoke of the phone call she received soon after the drop-off, telling her her beautiful boy had been stabbed and was dead.
1: This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Just a couple of weeks
0: ago, on the 25th anniversary of Ricky's murder, there was another murder conviction in the same Supreme Court. Keen observers, like local journalist Greg Dundas from the Geelong Advertiser, were very aware of the macabre connection, and he joined me to explain who these three boys were in 1995 and who the surviving two grew to be, the two men who are now both convicted murderers.
3: 1995 was the year that I moved to Geelong to go to uni here, so I'm not. Greatly different in age to Ricky. I mean, am probably one or two years older than what he would be and a lot of the other people who are involved in this case. Certainly was aware of the case back then when it happened as a journalism student. It was a big story in town at the time.
0: Yeah, so you just arrived in town when this happened?
3: Yeah, that, that same year and then I've been a reporter at the Geelong Advertiser for 12 years. And uh, this has always been a big case in Geelong, albeit there was a long time where not a lot was happening. But just by virtue of the very public nature of how Ricky was killed, 3.20 on a Friday afternoon in the middle of the central Geelong shopping centre, you know, people, mums going about the weekly shopping run kids knocking off school, the fact that somebody could do it in such a public place and not be caught up with for so long meant that it was a case that was really intrigued. I think the people of Geelong, I certainly as somebody of a similar age, I've got lots of friends now who know some of the people involved and I understand towns like Geelong pretty well. I come from a regional town myself, a different regional town before I moved here and I understand the fascination that exists in this case.
0: Oh, me too. I come from Toowoomba in Queensland, which is a very similar town to Geelong, I would say, in many ways. Uh, certainly, I've lived near Geelong now for a long time and they remind me of each other. But the thing about the Ricky Balcom case is it can be deceptive when you just sort of read about it at surface level, because you read about a 16-year-old boy stabbed in the centre of town there in the mall on a Friday afternoon. But then when we find out more about Ricky, I mean, this is a very complicated story anyway, but when we find out more about Ricky, we find out that he was the member of a so-called gang, right?
3: Yep, that's right. Yeah, so Ricky was, I guess, in you know, a, a group of kids. They called themselves. They um, had a couple of names. They distinguished themselves by wearing red bandanas, either you know, around their neck or sometimes around their ankles or their wrists. It was kind of their their calling card to each other. Teenagers who mostly, uh, some of them who perhaps had dropped out of school or weren't attending school a lot, hanging out at pinball parlors and billiard halls in town. Mostly, probably how you'd describe what they were doing getting up to a bit of mischief and but that's not to say that he was you know necessarily destined for a life of crime or anything like that he was uh, only just past his 16th birthday on the day he died and um what well, we saw at the trial where there were more than 60 witnesses who gave evidence was that there was some people involved in those days who had then spent many of the years subsequently, you know, in around criminal sort of activities, but a lot of other people who'd grown up and moved on with their life and raising their own families and going about uh, a normal life and, you know, just a little bit wayward back in their teenage years. I think certainly wrote at the time that not everybody is defined by the decisions that they make when they're 16 years old, but Ricky, unfortunately, kind of is.
0: Certainly having a friend murdered when you're 16 can have a big effect as well on how your future pans out, I reckon, having that trauma. But what was the name of their gang?
3: Oh, yeah. So they they called themselves, depends who you listen to, they, they called themselves the MSC which either stood for mainstream criminals or main street criminals. It's kind of referred to as both at different times, or they also called themselves the Reds by the Red Bandanas. I'm not sure how formal their structure was. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. We have a similar thing with the uh, Apex gang in Melbourne, you know, where it's like, well... It's really up for a lot of conjecture as to how many people were members of this supposed Apex gang. At different times, it's been attributed to have members of, you know, thousands of people when actually it was probably a couple of people who lived in Apex Street in Dandenong and it gets a bit overblown, doesn't it, after a while?
3: Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of people who associated themselves with that group of people, you know, a group of mostly guys who were hanging around, teenagers hanging around in town, some who wore the red bandanas. There would have been some people who, you know, really believed that it was a a strong entity and that it was making a mark in the city and that they had territory and these sorts of things. But, you know, but there would have been other people who were sort of uh, on the fringes of the group who perhaps didn't, you know, view it quite so seriously.
0: What sort of shenanigans were they getting up to, really?
3: Well, well I mean, what we've heard about, there was some, what would you describe it as, a bit of some assaults that some of the members were charged with and faced court for months after Ricky's death. There was on one version of events on the day that at the moment Ricky was killed, he was heading off to Maya to do some shoplifting um, to buy a gift for a girl uh, or to steal a gift for a girl. I think they were probably just guys who had fallen out of school and didn't have a lot to keep them occupied. And so they hung around in town looking for petty squabbles and defending their territory, that type of thing. You know, like I said before, hanging out at pinball parlours and beard houses, things like that. On a lot of the measures of what, you know, a lot of the versions that I've heard of it was that Ricky was associated with that and, you know, but I've never heard anything that suggested he was in the thick of anything particularly violent himself. It sounds as though he was, uh, you know, a lot of people have described him as uh, a more a cheeky sort of guy who you know did cause some mischief but you know a lot of people have described him to me as quite a charming character and someone who was perhaps more interested in trying to impress girls than getting into fights.
0: And yet the person who has been long accused of his stabbing murder was known to Ricky would that be fair to say or, or had they at least met before that Friday afternoon?
3: Yeah, they they had met in, I guess, violent circumstances two weeks prior to Ricky dying. So, the Friday, two weeks before, Ricky and his friend Nick Munn were walking through the streets of Geelong in the early (laughs) evening and, you know, uh, sounds kicking parking meters, uh, heading to a pinball parlour or something like that, just made some smart remarks to a group, another group of guys who were a little bit older than them, sort of more around the 21, 22 age. There was an exchange of words. Carl Haig was a member of this group, and Ricky and Nick Munn legged it after they probably bit off more than they could chew. And they got chased down, or Ricky got chased down, and Carl beat him up in the awning of a shop on Yarra Street in Geelong, which is just around the corner from the mall, it, probably not much more than 70 metres from the scene where he died two weeks later. And so, what happened from there is that Ricky, after copping a bit of a beating from this older fella, mouthed off, said, You know, um, you guys are, you'll get yours. And he, he left the scene, and he and Nick Munn went away. and got on the phone and started calling members of their gang. The members of their gang then all congregated in town with a series of weapons, a small axe, a machete, different types of menacing tools. They tooled up, as uh, some people would say, and they went searching for these guys who'd beaten up Ricky earlier in the day. Ricky, from what we heard at the trial, was quite scared and wasn't part of the subsequent incident that happened but his mates then found these guys Carl Haig and uh, some of his friends hanging out near a billiard hall they were in a brown Kingswood and the younger teenagers met the red bandana gang approached the car and started attacking at the car with their weapons um, I think Paul cues Q- Paul as well the driver's side window was smashed in and one of the weapons was left in the vehicle and Carl Haig drove that vehicle off from the scene before sort of driving, doing a U-turn, coming back and driving at them. And they sort of scurried out of the way. And the allegation beyond that is that when Ricky was killed two weeks later, that it was in revenge for that attack on the vehicle.
0: What sort of bloke was Carl Haig? Were he and his mates, older versions of Ricky and his mates, were they similar sort of fellas?
3: Yeah, I think that that's probably a reasonable inference to draw. They were older. Carl wasn't working at the time. He was 21 years old. They likewise were hanging out at a billiard hall on the... Uh, versions of events that I've heard you know they were the sort of guys who like to go into town and maybe maybe have a couple of drinks rev their engines um show off their cars that sort of thing
0: it's it felt as though Carl Haig was in the frame for this from the earliest I mean there were witnesses weren't there in the mall the day that Ricky Balcom was murdered and as as you've said it was broad daylight in a very public setting why was it unsolved for such a long time
3: yeah, well, there's a few reasons and having sat through the six or seven week trial, you know, I've traced the footsteps that Carl Hagstrode, strode, the, the alleged killer, oh, he was the alleged killer at the time, took after Ricky was killed and, you know, if if you took that route today, you would not be out of the sight of a security camera the whole way along for hundreds of metres. You wouldn't leave the Geelong CBD out of the side of the video camera. But unfortunately, at the time, the video cameras in the shopping centre were not working. And that was a big news story at the time. So that meant that there was no sort of conclusive evidence. Some of the members of Ricky's gang, including his good friend, Paul Bellier, who he was walking with at the time, were a little bit torn about their relationship with police, their relationship with the gang and uh, their desire to help police investigate it as well as I think their own fear that, you know, if they were to speak that they might find themselves in some kind of trouble themselves physically. So then you've got to remember that they were wayward teenagers in a lot of cases, perhaps not with a lot of solid adult role models around them from which to seek guidance. So uh, in that context, the police didn't get a lot of help from Ricky's friends. They did hear about the incident, the bashing two weeks earlier in those early days after Ricky died. And because of that, they were interviewing Carl Haig within about three days of Ricky dying.
0: I've said many times that all roads lead to Ron Iddles and who else would have been the lead detective in the Ricky Balcombe matter but Mr Iddles himself. Here he is in action in 1995 in an excerpt from Carl Haig's first police interview just days after Ricky's murder.
1: This is a tape-recorded interview between
3: Detective Idles and Carl Michael Haig of you know, 428 Wilkinson Court, Ocean Grove. The interview was conducted at the Homicide Squad 412 St Kilda Road, Melbourne. On Thursday, the 28th day of March 1996, also present is Senior Detective Brett Dawson. Carl, would you look at my watch? Because at the time is 2.52pm. Um, yes, I do. I now intend to interview you further in relation to uh, the offence of um, murder, uh, that being the uh, death of Ricky Balcombe at Geelong on the 5th day of May 1995. Is there anything further that you can tell me in relation to the death of Richard Dalton? I don't know nothing else. Right, what I do is uh, the investigation will uh, continue. I thank you for your assistance. Yes, and if I hear any information, I'll be first to let you know. Mr. Yes. Riddles, I'm just sick of it myself. If you look at my watch, do you agree that the time is now um, 2.54? Yes, I do. Thank you.
0: Our patrons can see a video of that entire interview on our page. Thank you to Karina B, Jessica Berry, Courtney Moiler, Christopher Morgan, Georgina Goddard, Karen Bailey, and Carrie Munchenberg for your
1: support. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too.
2: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: Coming up on Australian True Crime, we'll get to the other convicted murderer in this story. But first, you've just heard a snippet of Carl Haig's first police interview recorded with homicide detective Ron Idles in 1995, just days after Haig stabbed 16-year-old Ricky Balcom to death in broad daylight in the Market Square Mall in Geelong. That was 25 years ago now, and it took 23 years to convict Hague of the crime. I asked Geelong journalist Greg Dundas why it took so long and if Hague had ever come close to conviction before that.
3: Yeah, so he denied it in those early days afterwards. He, he denied it for for 20 plus years. He denied it at the trial as well. But he was charged around a year after Ricky died, a little bit more than a year, maybe 18 months after Ricky died. And he was due to face a trial early in 1998. But a couple of police got a couple of problems with the case, including Paul Bellier's reluctance. And Paul was the key witness because he was standing alongside Ricky when the killer approached. And because he had some mental health issues, really struck with anxiety, and I guess what we would now say was post traumatic stress, Paul became an unwilling witness. And on the back of almost exclusively on the back of that, it was Tavaran able to take the matter to trial. So Carl was let out back in 1998 and then spent most of the next. Twenty years living in Geelong with this reputation of being the man who was once charged of killing Ricky Balcom
0: and how was he living with that reputation from your perspective? I mean to me, it seems odd that so many people involved stayed in Geelong it's a small town. Did he seem to revel in that reputation or was he upset about having that reputation?
3: well, he did have some criminal matters that occurred from time to time, and of course those criminal matters to us at the Geelong advertiser would always be of extreme interest given that profile that he had. And at that time, you were able to report the fact that he was the man once accused of doing that to Ricky because he wasn't facing that charge at the time. So it dogged him in that sense. You could perhaps assume that a guy who he fancied himself as a bit of a tough guy might have, in some instances, revelled in that reputation. He did break his silence to us many years later after the case was reopened by the Homicide Squad and featured on a TV program called Million Dollar Cold Case. And so he, he got in touch with the newspaper and spoke to us at the time, about, I guess, in an effort to protest his innocence.
0: And what did he say then about the life that he had been leading?
3: Well, he said that the crime had or the, the allegations had dogged him his entire life and that it had made it difficult for him to find work at various times and lead the life that he'd hoped he would.
0: What sort of convictions did he rack up in, in that interim?
3: Probably the most serious was an incident where he was alleged to have fired a gun at a man outside a pizza shop in Jong's Northern Suburbs, a very serious incident, and he spent uh, quite some time in jail for that.
0: It is rather serious. Now, Ricky's mum, Christine Loder, did you speak to Christine much during that, that period of time? What sort of campaigns and efforts were they were they making, Ricky's family during that time?
1: Yeah,
3: they they were very shy and private people. And so the newspaper, from time to time, there would be instances where the police would obviously have been asking them to help put the plea out. They were always very firm in their desire for people to come forward and to help solve the case. I think you can only imagine how traumatic it must be to have your teenage son killed in cold blood and to potentially think that the person who did it is still floating around in your community. So just like the case came to define who Carl Haig was, I'm sure they felt at times like it defined who they were.
0: I mean, the fact that Ricky looked so young as well at the time of his death is significant, isn't it? In the reportage, he really does look very young, 16. He looks very childlike but he actually became a father after his death. Yeah. Was he aware that he was going to become a father when he died?
3: I understand he was. uh, He was aware of that. It was something that certainly we had never been aware of all the time that we'd been reporting it until it came up at the trial in 2018.
0: It always strikes me as intense, is the word I want to use, that people still live in small communities. I believe that the, the child in question, who is now an adult, still lives in Geelong. Ricky's family, parents and siblings still live in Geelong. A lot of the friends from back in the day still live in Geelong. And the person everyone thought was the perpetrator still lived in Geelong. It's, still, I mean, it's the sort of town you're running into people all the time. Everybody knows everybody. You're seeing people drive around. You're seeing them at the lights. That's so intense.
3: Yeah, it must be. I can't imagine what it's yeah. like to be thrust into that situation. I would think in, if it were myself that if I was on either side of it, I would probably move away. But I guess if Geelong is your place, just like anywhere else, then, you know, if it's where all your family and friends are, that's very hard to do.
0: Ricky's mate, Nick Munn, good mate of his back in the day, they were the same age. They were kicking around together in the gang. Yep. He had a criminal matter, let's say, and that's understating it incredibly, pop up not so long ago. Tell us about what happened in Nick Munn's life.
3: Yeah, so Nick Munn was the leader of the... MSC, Red Bandana Gang. He was, the, on the accounts that I've heard, the most aggressive member of that gang, the guy who took on the leadership responsibility on everyone's account. He was the man in charge, or the, the boy in charge of the gang. He was also the person who was very firm about the fact that the gang members should not cooperate with police in the days and months after Ricky died. So he was uh, very resolute on that fact and I know hearing from various people at the trial that some people felt quite intimidated by him and their decision not to be as cooperative as they could have with police, not to give as much information as they could, has to be seen in light of the fact they might have been a little bit spooked of Nick Munn. Mm,
0: With good reason I think it turns out.
3: Yeah so Nick Munn in a really fascinating series of developments he was shaping up as somebody that we were waiting to hear from at the trial. I guess shaped as quite a mysterious figure as the trial unfolded over the six or seven weeks. The jury didn't hear this, but as a reporter sitting in court before proceedings start, I would hear about the uh, police and the OPP's efforts to try and find Nick Munn, and they were unable to find him. He had been served with his subpoena to appear at the trial, but kind of went underground and he couldn't be found. And then on the day that the jury was discharged to go and do their deliberations, it emerged that uh, Nick Munn had been charged with a murder in Geelong. He was in hiding He'd stayed in Geelong, again, very similar to what you were describing earlier in terms of these people not getting away. Now, here's a guy who was trying to escape appearing at the trial, but he stayed in Geelong. He was uh, living with an old friend of his who he'd reacquainted with called Jason Fry at a sort of converted warehouse in uh, North Shore. As the trial was wrapping up and police still trying to find Nick Bunn to bring him to the trial, we learned later on that Nick had uh, killed his housemate, Jason Fry with a claw hammer.
0: Jason Fry was a fairly well-known gambling addict and drug user, and apparently Nick Munn... Well, well, someone was on their way over there to evict them, weren't they?
3: That's right. Yeah, so Nick had only been living there for a few weeks, and... Um, almost exclusively for the reason that he was trying to avoid police detection and appearing at um, Ricky's cold case or Carl Hague's cold case trial. Yes, and they were going to be or Jason was going to be evicted from the property that afternoon and Nick had given Jason some money and believed it had been fritted away and can only assume that he felt quite aggrieved that his money had been squandered and that he was going to be out of this property that had given him safe haven for a few weeks um
0: oh so nick nick had given him rent money i guess i'm assuming nick thought his money had gone on rent and then found out the hard way that it hadn't
3: yeah we're, we're talking about one or two thousand dollars you know in the scope of somebody's life it's a it's a small amount of money isn't it
0: it seems like a small amount of money to kill somebody and yet nick munn in this moment is a very desperate man and he's been let down very badly and i guess he's trusted a a mate who he knew was a gambling addict. And I suppose this bloke has made him a thousand promises. And then I'm not defending Nick, by the way. I know this sounds crazy, Uh, but I can sort of feel...
3: You're trying to understand.
0: Yeah, I can sort of feel the desperation in both of these men. These are desperate characters, hey?
3: Well, yeah, perhaps so. I suppose Nick claimed at his own trial that Jason Fry came at him first. But his account of that was... Pretty quickly dismissed and seemed pretty implausible. It was a very brutal and heartless killing, and then his conduct in the hours and days afterwards were particularly cold. Jason Fry, who was a father of three, it must be remembered as well, had children of his own that weren't living, he wasn't living with those children, but you know, it must be incredibly traumatic for them to have heard what happened to their dad. Jason Fry had what was described at court as up to 13 blows to the head, potentially from this claw hammer. Nick said that he only delivered a couple of those blows in self-defence and that the other injuries were sustained after he'd killed him and while he was loading his body in the car. He drove around Geelong in the days afterwards, doing errands and uh, trying to sell some of Jason's possessions with other people in the vehicle at times with that body in the boot of the car. Whereas, you know, obviously, very different trials, but where it's at Carl Haig's trial, the jury deliberated for over a week before reaching their decision. At Nick Munn's trial, they took an hour.
0: Ooh. So, if it wasn't Nick Munn's testimony, what was it that changed things for Carl Haig after all this time?
3: The case was reopened. There'd been a $50,000 reward for information to help find Ricky's killer around. Since 1995, that had been in existence, but in 2017, the police got that reward up to $1 million, and that $1 million was aired as part of a program on Channel 7 called Million Dollar Cold Case. So that was a sign clearly that the homicide squad were getting, uh, not to suggest that they weren't serious about it, but getting particularly serious about that case again. And there were some other people that came forward, but I think it's fair to say that the key witness at the trial was Ricky's friend who was with him when the stabbing happened and ran from the scene moments afterwards. Paul, as a man around 40 by the time the matter went to trial, decided that he needed to put to rest the varying versions of events that he had given in police statements over the years. And to tell the truth and say that he was confident that he looked into the eyes of the killer and that it was Carl Haig, a man that he did not know at the time, but that he later learned to be Carl Haig.
0: By the time he got to to this trial, he said that at about 3.20 on May fifth, nineteen 1995, Haig approached Ricky and himself, Paul Bellier, outside the shopping centre and said, do you remember me, motherfucker, and stabbed him. Oh, gosh, I wonder why why he wasn't afraid anymore of, of Haig and his friends? Because, I mean, Hague is only in his early 40s now. He's, it's not like he's an old, defenceless man who can't hurt anybody anymore. It's, it's interesting. I wonder why he's not afraid anymore.
3: I think Paul faced a particularly gruelling cross-examination and faced, from memory, something like five various days where he was in the witness box at the trial. He had to explain to the jury why he'd given five different statements to police and explain each of the variances within those statements it's very complicated evidence because of the nature of how he says he he didn't know Carl at the time but he later understood who he was so and that's quite a complex type of concept to explain to people i suppose how you might come to understand and you know he's obviously quizzed around what came first was it his understanding that Carl Haig was the man that police wanted to talk to. So was he influenced by the fact that Carl Haig had been identified as one of the people the police were looking at and then also the offer of a million-dollar reward? Do you know if he got the reward? I always wonder about that. I understand that those rewards can't be accessed or applied for until after the case has uh, completely run its course through the courts of
0: course after yeah appeals and everything
3: appeals and all those types of Mm. things so Carl did appeal his appeal was dismissed last year it would be a story that would be of huge interest to us at the Geelong Addy to know whether anybody cashed in on that reward Mm. but that is difficult information to get it's not information that they readily make available I bet
0: Justice Lex Lazary presided over the case, and and he said in his summing up that he thought that Haig's rehabilitative prospects were guarded at best. What sentence
3: did he give Carl Haig? He got a twenty six year sentence. Mm-hmm. So he, well, that's that's a maximum term.
0: It's a fair old stretch at his age, in your sort of early forties, that's a fair old stretch.
3: For sure. So he he gets the benefit of the time that he served back in 1997 when he was arrested and charged. And of course, the time that he spent after his arrest in more modern times prior to the trial as well. So that all sort of gets taken off, Mm -hmm. but he will be well into his 60s before he is uh, released back into the community.
0: And Nick Munn got Justice Champion, who gave him 27 years with a non-parole period of 21 years. What do you think the chances are of these two men meeting up in custody? Because I can't imagine that would be pleasant for either of them.
3: No, well, we we did hear at Nick Munn's sentencing, and this is one of the particularly, I'm not really sure how, it's a coincidence, so I guess a very bizarre twist of coincidence was that Nick Munn was sentenced on the 25th anniversary of Ricky's killing, the exact day, May the 5th. In that sentencing, we were told that his time so far in custody had been arduous it's the type of thing that we often hear in the courts for various reasons we're hearing it a lot at the moment because of the COVID-19 pandemic people are doing time a lot harder than they normally would that was raised but also the fact that he is needing to be protected or distanced from Carl Haig and his associates so uh, as I understand it based off that bit of information that came out that Nick is being kept away from those people.
0: I mean, I don't know which particular facility they're in, but it's, it can't be much bigger than Geelong.
3: <laughs> to be well, we've got you know, we obviously have some of the some of the more serious prisons close by here as well. We do. But, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. They, they've lived in the same city. We did hear at the trial about some instances in the coming years where Nick Munn and Carl Haig had supposedly um, crossed paths and had discussions. Those instances were intriguing at the time to hear about and I imagine the type of thing that we would have heard more about from Nick Munn, he would have been quizzed about those had he taken the stand at Carl Haig's trial. But um, as we know, that never happened.
0: The Age ran a headline or the day after Carl Haig was sentenced that read, family goes feral after killer gets 26 years.
3: Yeah, there there were certainly some ugly scenes on the streets in the court precinct in the Melbourne CBD that day where some of Carl's friends and family didn't take kindly to having TV cameras in their faces.
0: There's lots online about the conduct of Carl Haig's family during his murder trial and on the day of his sentencing. But if you dig deep enough, you'll also find this. It's an unedited piece of film in which you can see and hear a reporter yelling very provocative questions into the faces of those family members as they try to walk along the street outside the court. He uses their names and he and his cameraman get in their way, preventing them from walking. There's a very bright light on the front of the camera, so they're squinting and they're holding their hands up defensively. They're obviously afraid of falling.
3: Yeah. How do you feel? Get out of there, Get out of there, feel? Joyce, how
2: do you feel? You admit your son's a killer. Keep walking. No, he's not a killer. Keep walking. Out the way. No,
3: killer. Out the way. Don't touch
2: me. Out the way.
0: All I'm saying is that I can't vouch for how dignified my behaviour would be under that kind of harassment. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.